to solve the mystery that I know is in your mind. I'm 70 years old today. (laughs) And I'm sure you'll applause even louder when I tell you that biblically I'm now dead. Uh, Every day from here on is just uh, a bonus. But I'm thankful to have come this far and I hope the trip on the way down is as good as it was on the way up. Here we go. The greatest thing that I could do for America and Americans on July the 4th is to preach the word. We know how sinful we are. I don't have to remind you of the horrible state of affairs spiritually in our nation and in our world. What we need is the remedy for all of our problems and our sins. So I just want to continue on in the Gospel of John today. We covered this particular verse last week. I want to look at it again and lay it as a foundation for the rest of John's prologue in, for his Gospel. It ends in verse 18. And the sec- this section of the prologue begins in verse 14. The Logos, the word. Remember Logos? An idea, a thought that is gathered into the mind of the one who is about to express it. And gathering that thought, he mixes it with his wisdom and his knowledge and his emotion and his passion. And then that thought, that idea becomes an expression. And it is expressed... And when it is expressed outwardly and made manifest, it remains as part of the one who gave it, but now it becomes part of the one who receives it. Logos. And the word logos became flesh. Tabernacle. Remember that word? Tabernacle. Eskenos in the Greek, in the original text. It's a word of temporary abode. It was used in a lot of cases in a military sense where the troops were on a mission And when they arrived at the place where they were going, they would set up a tent to temporarily dwell there until they had accomplished their mission. And then they would strike the rope of the tent and go back from whence they came. Christ, God the Son, tabernacled among us. He had a mission. He didn't come to stay as a man like that. He came to die on the cross to pay the price of redemption for his own. And we beheld his glory. Glory. They saw it, for example, in the Mount of Transfiguration. There when the representatives from heaven, Moses and Elijah, stood and communed with Christ about his impending departure in Jerusalem, namely his death. And at that moment, joining himself with those who were there communing with him and, and speaking with him from heaven, the glory of God the Son spilled through the walls of his flesh and they saw it. Then when he was lifted up in Acts chapter 1, eperthe is the Greek word, orum is the Hebrew, it speaks of Isaiah 6. He was lifted up, I saw... 
Yahweh, high, aside, and Yahweh, high, high, and lifted up. The word in the Greek becomes eperthi. It's not just that he's defying gravity. It is that he is being restored with the peculiar glory that belongs to God the Son that he prayed for in John 17. Father, give back to me the glory that I had with you from before the world ever was. We beheld his glory. No wonder they looked with their mouths open. Emblepo, they gazed. Why do you stand here gazing? He's coming again just like that. Glory as of an only begotten, monogamous, the only one of his kind, God the Son. God the only begotten Son. From the Father, full, pleris, full, all that he is. Think about that, the existence of God, the fullness of God full of grace and truth. Remember that last phrase because we draw upon it. It, it. it is used as a foundational statement for a reference that is made in what we're going to look at today in our text. So with that reminder from last week, let's get into the next verse, okay? John, that is John the Baptist, witnesses concerning him and he cried out saying, this was he of whom I was saying, the one coming after me has precedence over me because he was before me. Now, cousin John here was six months older than Jesus of Nazareth. But understand the gravity of his message, John the Baptist's message. There was only one in all of history, only one harbinger of Christ just like before he comes again, there are only those that are the two witnesses. That's just those guys. They're, they're equipped by God and resourced by God, called by God, filled with God's spirit to do what God has designed them to do. So it was with John the Baptist. He had this one job. This was the reason for his existence to sort of bridge the Old Testament with the New Testament, to be the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament preacher in a sense. And so he was, as the prophet had said, the one, the voice crying in the wilderness, and he was out in the middle of nowhere and they came from everywhere to hear him. The power of his message that people were just weren't ready for the manifestation of the Christ of God, the Messiah, pricked the hearts of the Jews in that time. And by the thousands, they marched into the Jordan River to be baptized in John's baptism. That was a peculiar and distinct baptism. It wasn't Christian baptism. It was a, it was a baptism of John the Baptist. And it revealed the broken hearts of the Jewish people who acknowledged that they had just drifted too far and they were not prepared for the appearance of the Messiah. And so John preached, make the way straight for him. Knock down the high places and build up the low places when the king would come into a city in those days. The avenue on which he, in which he would ride, on which he would ride, perhaps had fallen into disrepair and there were potholes and there were, 
there were rocks that had fallen off the sides. And so there were high places and low places and the rocks needed to be knocked out of the way. And the low places, the potholes needed to be filled up and that needed to be a smooth, straight highway, avenue, right into the city as the city would come. John would say, we're not ready. Our hearts are not ready. We need to knock down the high places and fill in the low places. And he was preaching of the Christ until finally the Christ was revealed and introduced by John the Baptist. And this was part of his message. This is what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says that the harbinger, the only harbinger, the only one who would preach designated by God to be the introducer in this world of the Christ of God, the Messiah, God the Son, this one single guy who had this one single calling acknowledged the deity of Christ, that he was higher than anyone. He has precedence. That's a, that's a, that's a word of rank. And he was before me. He pre-existed me. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus, but that didn't make any difference. The Christ of God came from eternity. We've talked about that already. First 14 verses. And so his message laid the foundation of the Christian message. That our Lord is God who has come among us and walked with us. And demonstrated his power and his glory. And all who will see him by faith understand this is God in the flesh. He entered into a covenant with the Father from before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. And a book was written of his own from before the foundation of the world. And he has come to redeem me. From the fallen state in which I find myself. But he was before me and he came out of eternity and into time for me. So that upon a certain day, his spirit would convict me. The father would call me. And I would come to the complete understanding that I was an undone sinner. Hopelessly lost unless God would save me through his Christ. I had nothing to pay for it. There was nothing I could do to live it out. No behavior was good enough. If he was going to save me, he was just going to do it as a gift for me. He would give it to me. Grace. Thus, I came by faith. He gave me the gift of repentance. He gave me the gift of faith. He called me. He drew me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, Jesus says in John 6. And I came on that particular day. And I have, by the grace of God, I have, as Peter said I would, I have grown in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I started out knowing that I couldn't save myself. But as that 10-year-old boy, I didn't realize what kind of grace and how much grace was extended to me, has been extended, continues to be extended to me.
grace that saved me. Thus I'm humbled. I have nothing of which to boast. Even in the new heaven and the new earth. All I can boast of is the glory of God. This is what it's all about. We are saved to the praise of our God and to his glory. Into the ages of the ages of the ages. And I'm learning more and more every day that he is so much higher than me. It's all of him and none of me. There was nothing in me that could save me. Absolutely nothing. I continue in this fallen world and in, in my yet unglorified state. Justified? Yes. Sanctified? Yes. Glorified? Not yet. And I continue to realize to the, to the breaking of my heart how sinful I am. And how much more do I praise him for his grace. John the Baptist said he's higher than me. And he was before me at the very first of the preaching that introduced the Christian era, the church, the Christ, the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At the very at the very beginning of it was the deity of Christ and the eternalness of Christ. Now, remember I told you that last phrase in verse 14, we would, there was in the context, there was a reference back to it. Here it is. For from his Fullness. Pleromatas. Another version of the same word, full of grace and truth. His fullness. Not my fullness. I don't have the juice spiritually to live in the favor of God every day, every hour of the day. I'll get angry. I'll have a bad thought. I'll do something I shouldn't have done. I will not do something I should have done. And I'm, my flesh and my spirit, like Paul says in Romans 7, are just in a constant struggle with one another. And I don't have any power of my own. Never, not ever. But he has it all. Remember what it said in verse 14, full of grace. How big is God? We cannot think of it. We are created beings. We're, we're the effect. He's the cause. The effect is never as great as the cause. He's beyond all dimensions. We live in three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. He's beyond that. He's above it. It's within him. Those things are in him. Remember Acts 17? In him we live and move and have our being. He's above us, beyond us, around us. And we're within him by his power, according to the purpose of his plan of creation. 
There will never be enough grace emanating from any other source to keep me saved except from my Savior. His fullness. He's full of grace and truth. Aletheia, truth. The Greek word means true as opposed to counterfeit. To be a word keeper. He's full of his word. What, what great things has he said about his people? There's not one bad thing in the Bible that's said about the destination of saints. So, it is from his fullness, from, and that's an eternal supply, you understand that? An eternal supply of grace. We all can be bad people from time to time, even after we're saved. The Holy Spirit in us convicts us of it. We become remorseful and repentant, of course. If we don't, something's terribly wrong. But we still struggle in this life. I need a constant, overabounding flow of grace that never stops into my life. I have it from his fullness. He is full of grace. You cannot exhaust the life of God. So if he's full of grace, then you cannot exhaust the grace of God. And so here's how he explains it. For from his fullness, we have all received grace, perpetually succeeding grace. I need grace for today. I'll need grace for tomorrow. I needed grace last hour. I need it this hour. Last minute, this minute. Perpetually succeeding itself is grace in my life. You see that word uh, up here in, uh, in the text, in the original text. It says, it's uh, the word anti. Uh, Karen anti. Caritas, grace, always after grace. That's what it means. One preacher used this illustration that I thought probably we may could understand. You go to Gulf Shores and you stand on the beach. I don't, but most people do. And the waves come. Here comes one. Here comes another one. Here comes another one. And another one. And it never stops. And I try to look and I can't see the end of it. It just perpetually comes wave after wave. Well, in a crude sense, that illustrates the grace of God. It constantly flows into my life. It will never stop. I, he knows I can't keep myself saved. I cannot save myself and I cannot keep myself saved. 
I needed the grace of God to awaken me from deadness, dead in trespass and sin. I needed the grace of God to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. I was dead. I was in a ruined state. I was in the fallen state of Adam, the first one. Helpless and hopeless. As a matter of fact, Paul writes to the Romans and he says, no man seeks after God. I didn't even seek after God. You didn't either. But God came for me. I needed his grace to save me. And throughout my life, I have needed this perpetual flow of grace to keep me saved. Christ has ascended into heaven. The one of whom the scriptures teach us is full of grace. And what is he doing now? As my high priest, he is keeping me saved. That's what he's doing. The Holy Spirit has sealed me to the day of redemption as a down payment, as an earnest payment. Thus, Paul writes to the Ephesians. With the Holy Spirit in my life there to seal me, I couldn't seal myself for salvation, but he did. I can't, I can't summon up the grace needed for the terrible things that happen in my life that I will face, that I will do. But he will give it because I'm his. I'm in Christ. We have all received grace perpetually succeeding Grace. For the law was given through Moses. The law can't save you. Behavior can't save you. Your self perceived standard of righteousness cannot save you. Because the standard of righteousness. In this fallen world is always changing. We live in that day of which Isaiah spoke where evil is good and good is evil. And today things are deemed accept acceptable and righteous that were an abomination 20 years ago. The standard of righteousness conjured up in the mind of man is always changing. And so man cannot be saved by his standard of righteousness, nor can he be saved by the standard of righteousness through Moses because it was not given, we're told in the Bible, it wasn't given to save us. It was given to reveal to us how bad we are. All of us break the Ten Commandments here and there. How many times do you have to sin to be a sinner just once? Worse than that, we are born into sin. Just being born brings us under the curse of sin because we're in the race of Adam. The law was given through Moses and it could not save. 
Grace and truth, there's that phrase again, came. Actually, there's probably a, there's probably, I could have done a better job translating that one. Again, it became. It became. There was no, there was no physical presence of God in the Old Testament. Now, Nobody has ever been saved apart from grace. But I've said it many times, the saints of the Old Testament were, were saved on credit. Job put it like this, I know my Redeemer lives. He ain't here yet, but I know he lives. That someday I'll see him. I'll see him and not another. Even though my skin is destroyed by the skin worms, yet in my flesh I'll see God. I'll see him. That's what he said. That was the earliest, probably the oldest written book of the Old Testament. They were saved knowing that God had promised the seed of woman. That God had promised them a way out. So they looked forward to the day of Christ. But they did not have the they did not have the activated grace. They had to be saved on credit. They had to keep writing credit card checks and using the card. Oops, I sinned. But today, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-ascension, today we're saved <laughs> with a debit card. It's already in the bank. And it can never be exhausted. The law was given through Moses. It was a long, centuries-long lesson of how undone and how unsaved we are in our own behavior. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth became through Jesus Christ. Do you see so much sin debt had piled up from Adam to the cross? And how much more sin debt would there be to cover from the cross to the coming of Christ, he paid it all on the cross. He set the Old Testament ones free from their debt and has guaranteed me an endless supply that I will ever be free from the guilt and penalty of sin. He took it on himself at the cross. This was grace. Grace and truth. Word keeper. Truth. Became. Through Jesus Christ. What a sight it must have been. John the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who writes this gospel was there. At the cross. 
He was there when he saw the resurrected Christ. He was there to receive the teaching of the resurrected Christ. He was there to behold the ascension of the Christ. Oh, he was on, he was on Patmos when he saw the glory of the coming Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one, no one has seen, Eorikin, has seen to understand Eorikin, has seen to discern God yet ever. Let me tell you why that is. I've said it before. I'll, I'll tell you again. I didn't wear it out. God is so big. We, we can't even use a human term to describe God. He's beyond anything I can think of. Eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, infinite. I, there's no word that can apply to him because it's a man-made word. And everything about God and all of his attributes are greater than anything that I could conjure up in my mind. So if I'm to know God at all, God is going to have to reveal himself to me in the only way that I can understand. Because he's too much, he's too great otherwise. I don't have the capacity, the ability, I never will. Even into the ages of the ages, I will never have that capacity to fully understand and discern the greatness of the person of God. No one has seen God yet ever because you can't. I can't. There's no way to know. The only begotten God. Now that's the way it reads up here. Monogamous. The only one of his kind. God. How can we, how can we, God the Son is the condescension of God into time and space, thus to put on display and to manifest God in the only way that we can understand it. So the only begotten, this is God the Son, the one being in the bosom or the intimacy of the Father. So this is God the Son. How, that word, that, it's hard to, that word, Culpin, uh, uh, bosom, intimacy. It is used many times in the Greek as a laundry term. The fuller, someone folds the laundry. And where a fold joins the other and a pocket is formed, that's a culpin. That's what is, that's what is translated here as bosom or the intimate part of the father. This is God the son. 
So God, we saw this in the first 14 chapters, first, especially first three uh, verses, especially the first three. God, in order to create the universe, had to condescend and make it from his power. And then, in a way that only God could understand, God the Son, in his condescension, would join himself to his creation. Right? He is ever in the intimate bosom of the Father. But he has come forth from the Father to explain God to us. The word to explain. Exegesita. Exegesis preachers have a word to exegete. To exegete means to with to extract from the depths of the of the of the text, especially into the original, so that it can be fully explained. That's exegesis. Well, same word is used here to explain or to exegete, to make known, I guess. To reveal, to make known, to explain. How can we ever know God? The only way we can know God is to study the gospel of Matthew. Study the gospel of Mark and Luke and John and Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2nd, yada, yada, all the way to Revelation. This is the only way because Christ and no other entity anywhere no other ideology, nothing, no one can explain God but Christ. Only Christ. If Christ is not known, God is not known. This foolishness of how, oh, we all, we're all monotheistic, we all serve one God. That's foolishness. We cannot know God except through his Christ. Psalm 2. Why do, the, why do the nations rage against God and his Christ? The world abhors the Christian message. Oh, they want you to think that oh, you can know God. God's your buddy. You can carry him in your hip pocket. God's your pal. He's the big guy. He's this. He's that. Listen. You cannot know God except through Christ. Because this is the way God has chosen to reveal himself. He has not, we can't know him any other way. He's too big, he's too much, he's too great. But I can know him through Christ. And so I study the blessed gospel of Christ. I study the acts of his apostles, the work of his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that comes into his church. And I learn more and more about God who became a man.
to save me. No one has seen God yet ever. The only begotten God, the one being in the bosom or the intimacy of the Father, He has made Him known. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came into this world to save sinners. If God is calling you into His salvation today, I would invite you in the act of standing in just a moment to come and let me pray with you. Just walk right down the aisle. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian and God leads you to come into this congregation, into this fellowship. We'll take care of all those details. This is God's time with you. Maybe you have questions or you don't want to do it during this appeal, but you want to stop and speak to our deacons and their wives who are in rooms right across the hall as you exit. You can take care of it there as well. As God calls, as God speaks, you're invited to come. Father God in heaven, bless us. And speak to our hearts and use us for your glory always. And use this invitation for your glory and we ask it in the name of Christ. Prayerfully, with your eyes closed, just stand, would you, all over this room? And you come as the Lord calls, as the Lord speaks, and she's going to play that song of invitation for us. And if you know the words while you're praying, you can sing it with us, all right?